Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Stay Tuned In Brief. I'm Preet Bharara. Today, we're going to talk about the crisis unfolding across the pond. In just the past two months, the United Kingdom has had three different prime ministers. First, there was Boris Johnson. Then 10 days ago, Liz Truss resigned from the role after 44 days in office, making her the shortest serving prime minister in UK history. On Tuesday, a 42-year-old named Rishi Sunak officially took over as Britain's new leader, becoming the first person of color to serve as prime minister. He takes the reins as the UK faces a deepening economic downturn. Whenever I want to understand British politics, I turn to my friend Ed Luce. Ed is the US national editor and columnist at the Financial Times. Ed, welcome back. It's a pleasure to be with you again, Preet. So we spoke about three months ago, and there was a lot of turmoil. Boris Johnson was on the verge of resigning, and you made some predictions about who would replace him. And there were three names you mentioned, and you were right twice, <laughs> actually. <laughs> Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, in that order, which should have uh, makes me think you're going to ask for my next three predictions. I was because... going to, I was going to, but first of all, how surprising is this to you that Liz Truss lasted only 44 days? I hate to say, uh, not at all surprising. Um, and even though I anticipated as the sort of ultra Johnson loyalist, she would probably uh, win, uh, replace him. I still, along with many people, conservative and non-conservative in Britain or from Britain, am astonished that she ever reached 10 Downing Street. Just quite astonished. And I think we see why that there was that astonishment. So how did she, so if, if it was foreseeable by intelligent people that her term would be short and a failure, how did she manage to eke out the victory against Rishi Sunak? Because she, well, it's a very peculiar system. It's like a primary, but it's a giant national primary amongst conservative party members. And she proved to be the most ultra Boris-esque or Johnsonian of the loyalists um, uh, in the field. Rishi Sunak, of course, was uh, the Brutus um, who played assassin <laughs> to Johnson's Caesar. And therefore, he had ruled himself out uh, amongst the, the party membership. Truss was the one who pandered to them most. And, 
you know, she the bigger the bigger the tax cut you offer, which is what she ran on, and the more Europhobic you sounded, uh, the, the the more cartoonishly you came across, the more popular you were with party membership, and it worked. What is the thing that she did, either with economic policy or otherwise, that led to her downfall? She announced, uh, it would have been straight away, but because the Queen died uh, a couple of days after she took office, about 10 days uh, into her office, this mini-budget. The mini-budget involved uh, a really huge tax cut, the the largest um, for, for almost 50 years, at a time when the cost of borrowing, you know, and interest rates are going up and up. We're in a very new phase. We're in a period of monetary contraction. And it was an unfunded tax cut. And the British public knew it would be accompanied a few weeks later by big spending cuts. So it was A, politically tone deaf, but B, fiscally, very irresponsible. And uh, the bond markets acted as judge and jury, essentially said, no, this isn't either fiscally sustainable or politically credible at this time, at a time when the British people are going to be facing sky-high energy bills and right. cuts to spending. And so it was it was remarkable. You know, the, she's the ultimate sort of Reaganite, well, cartoonish Reaganite, yeah, that's I'm right, st- free, I'm free finding, marketeer. I'm still finding it, you know, I'm asking the same question one, one more time. Her tax cut policy was not a surprise, was it? It wasn't a surprise, but I think that the markets and, you know, voters know the difference between the extravagant promises you make to win a campaign and then what you do when you open the proverbial books when you get into office. So the markets did not predict correct, because you would might you might think when, when Liz Truss's name was on the verge of being declared the winner, maybe I'm getting this totally wrong, but why wouldn't the markets have tanked then in anticipation of ruinous tax cuts? The pound had been going down all year. Um, so the trend had been downwards and it had continued after she was uh, she won the leadership contest. But I think there's a difference between hearing a promise in the abstract and seeing the actual mathematics or lack of mathematics behind that promise when it is formally delivered to the House of Commons. And uh that was the moment. And I remember the day, it was September the 23rd. I was in New York that day. Quasi uh, Kwarteng, the then chancellor, announced it. And as he spoke, the, the pound dropped like a lead balloon. Yeah. Is the death of the queen to be blamed on Liz Truss? <laughs> no, but, you know, somebody just mentioned- That was a we joke. From, that was a joke. We went from one Liz to another Liz, and uh, we preferred the first Liz. <laughs> so, so Rishi Sunak- 42 years old, of Indian origin, like me. You talked about him when we spoke three months ago, and you said, well, if he became the prime minister, that would be a watershed moment for various reasons. Is this a watershed moment? It is. I mean, the fact that it's the first non-white prime minister Britain's had, uh, first Hindu um, prime minister Britain's had as well, um, you know, and that it's a fairly unexceptional, no, nobody's surprised by it. It's not, it's not caused sort of big racist backlash, uh, is, is, is a landmark moment for sure. Uh, it's worth mentioning that the Conservative Party, ironically, is way more diverse at its senior levels than the Labour Party, which has only ever had white male leaders. Conservatives had three female prime ministers, a Jewish prime minister in the 19th century, and now the first Hindu prime minister. But I think what the British people are focusing on um, is the fact that, you know, he's super, super rich. He married a billionaire's daughter. 
Mariana Murthy, who you know is the founder of Infosys, one of uh, India's biggest IT companies, his daughter Akshar, to whom he met at Stanford, and that you know this super wealthy prime minister will be delivering spending cuts soon. So I'd say his Achilles heel, where, where he's in danger is in classic British terms, not, not so much from his race as his class. When Liz Truss was in trouble and stepping down, were you concerned for a short period of time that Boris Johnson was going to make a comeback? I was, and um, I made the mistake of checking the um, bookie agencies, <laughs> Ladbrokes and Paddy Power and all the all the like, and they had him as odds-on favorite. And uh, he, of course, himself had himself as odds-on favorite. And you needed to get 100 members of parliament, because the first round is the members of parliament, a slightly more sophisticated electorate. The second round is the mem- membership nationwide. He needed 100 members of parliament to get through to the final two who would have been put to the membership. And he couldn't get to 100. And I suspect the reason he couldn't get to 100 is that the reason why he was evicted from Downing Street last July is because he was the least popular British prime minister since polling began. Uh, now, Liz Truss overtook him. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, now he's in second place. And now he's in second place. Um, and he might have overestimated. I mean, for goodness sake, he came back from a two week vacation in the Dominican Republic in order to, <laughs> you know, throw his hat. This is two weeks back in the ring, of yeah. maximum parliamentary drama. Uh, when the mark, when the pound is under threat, Britain's very reputation and credibility is being shredded before our eyes. And he's, you know, on the beach with a, with a cocktail. So his lack of seriousness, I think, wasn't, it wasn't hard to remind members of parliament that yeah. this guy is fundamentally lazy and, and unserious. So does Prime Minister Sunak benefit from the fact that he had a very unpopular, historically unpopular, predecessor? Or did she bollocks things up so much that he's in a lot of trouble? And I want you to appreciate my use of bollocks. Yeah, I was going to give you an A grade, uh, Breed. Uh, bollocks, uh, I was impressed by that. Well, the first rule of jobs, as you know, is always follow an underperformer. Yes. Um, so he starts off in, in um, a relatively good place. He's followed uh, arguably four underperformers. Um, so an even better place. There's a low bar to sort of being an acceptably, comp- acceptably competent prime minister. Unfortunately for him, though, he inherits um, finances, the, uh, an accounting sort of situation, if you like, that is really unenviable. Um, if he wants to please the markets and stabilize, you know, the, the the bond, the gilt markets, as they're known in Britain, the bond market, government bond markets, and the pound, he has to be fiscally responsible which means spending cuts and tax increases. And no politician ever got popular doing either of those things, let alone both at the same time. Um, but if he doesn't do that, then the markets will resume their, you know, the, their tumbrils and they will decapitate him at the guillotine, just like they did Liz Truss. So he's got a horrible choice. And I suspect the only one, you know, that's re- realistic is to be respons- fiscally responsible and politically unpopular. I want to get back to substance in a moment, but before that, I want to ask you about some optics. So in the first speech he gave as the new prime minister, I was very, very struck by the tone he, he struck and the statement he made, and he used the passive voice in referring to his predecessor. He said, mistakes were made. I thought that was a phrase that only could be used ironically in the modern era. 
Yeah. Um, Mistakes I, I mean, were I made. Guess, I guess that was tactical. I mean, remember, I mean, sorry, tactful, well, and tactical. But uh, if you remember the leadership campaign, the long, torturous summer of conservative contest, he warned again and again in the many debates that they had that if Liz Truss's plans were put into action, the pound would sink, the cost of borrowing would skyrocket, and Britain would be immediately into economic crisis. And he was quite correct. I mean, it didn't take any great genius to foresee that, but he was absolutely correct, much quicker than I expect he thought he would be. And so, you know, she's bollocked, she bollocked up uh, in a right royal fashion. And that's why he became prime minister within 44 days. I've, I've never seen... None of us have ever seen anything like this. Britain's putting Italy into the shade. <laughs> no offense to Italy. No offense to Italy. Can we talk about the economy of Britain for another moment? Do you have a sense or an understanding of why Britain is in the position it's in? Derek Thompson wrote in The Atlantic recently, referring to the UK as, quote, one of the poorest countries in Western Europe, end quote. What's going on? He's correct. Um, I had, it was funny, I mentioned on September the 23rd, that day I was with Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of England, highly respected, a Canadian in fact, but he was governor of the Bank of England. And I said, can you give me your value neutral take on Brexit? Because as a public servant, he can't give a political view. And he said, uh, in 2016, when Britain left the European, when Britain voted to leave the European Union, the British economy was 90% the size of Germany's. That day, on those market rates, uh, before the mini-budget was announced, Britain had dropped to 70% the size of Germany's economy. Now, that, I think, captures what has happened in a short frame of time, that uh, Britain went from being the fastest-growing economy in Europe to the slowest-growing economy in Europe. And although it wasn't the sort of dramatic recession following the referendum that the Remain campaign warned would happen, which was called Project Fear. We have had a slow puncture, and six years of slow puncture begins to look like a crash, accumulatively. Impact on lowering wages, the impact on completely stagnant productivity growth, and the impact uh, on Britain's trade position, which, you know, having thumbed its nose at the, the largest trading bloc in the world on its doorstep, is cumulatively adding up to a pretty hefty bill. And uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, unless we get some very magical, improbable scenario where Britain, A, decides it wants to rejoin Europe, but even more improbably, Europe decides we want to let you back in, right. uh, which I, I wouldn't imagine they would, then there's going to be five to 10 years more of sort of lost economic growth before the economy completely stabilizes and reorients itself. What does... Prime Minister Sunak in the leadership role mean for the relationship between the United States and Britain? He's a very pro-American and, you know, he's a, 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 and he's quite a sort of Silicon Valley pro-American. The Stanford years had an impact mm -hmm. um, on him. And so I think he's, he begins with very warm uh, sort of premise in terms of the special relationship, as the British call it. He's said the right things uh, in terms of Britain's continu continuity in Ukraine, uh, supporting Ukrainian um, resistance to Russia, supplying weapons, financial support. So I don't think there'll be uh, any great change there. And that's actually one of the remarkable things about all this. Whichever leader there is or whichever party were in power, 
everybody agrees Ukraine needs to be backed. That's the one constant you can rely on. Um, everything else, though, you know, if I were Biden, and Biden made a very warm statement, and, you know, he recognized the fact this is the first Indian-British prime minister. But if I were Biden, you know, I, I would obviously continue to be warm. Britain is a close ally, but um, I, I wouldn't sort of invest too much until you, you know, you've got past 44 days. Yeah. Wasn't he, wasn't he warm about Liz Truss also? Yeah, he was, he's, he's <laughs> uh, nice, a consummate but... statesman, a consummate <laughs> statesman. You have to be nice. What do you think will happen to Sunak? Does he have a risk of having a very brief tenure also is he going to come to learn, and pardon me for this in advance, that the tenure of a UK prime minister is nasty, British, and short? <laughs> I can't be the first person to have done that. Uh, it's the first time I've heard it. And uh, chapeau for the second time, Bree. <laughs> All day I've been waiting to say that to you. Well, and Rest also peace, be Thomas Hobbes. People are very, very surprised when they meet uh, Sunak that he's only five foot seven. So the short bit would work, but he's definitely not nasty. I mean, he's a, he's a grown up. He used three terms, three words in his um, acceptance speech that he would govern with professionalism, accountability, and integrity. Now, clearly, this was an implicit drawing a line with his two predecessors. Um, but I think, broadly speaking, his uh, tenure as Chancellor of the Exchequer, one of the very big jobs in British politics, bore that out, that he was uh, he was a grown-up, and, the, and there's precious, precious few of those around, and that um, he has every incentive to try and stabilise things. Um, the Conservative Party know that whenever the election is held, and they can, they can drag this out for two years, they're going to lose. Labour is going to come back in. I mean, the brand is so discredited that even if Sunak does well, Labour is the next government. Um, so he's, so he's essentially a lame duck. He's kind of, and let's pick up the Italy scenario. You know, Italy goes through this comic opera politics, and then about every five, ten years, they think we'd better have a technocrat for a year or two. You know, just just because we woke up with a hangover, um, and then they put somebody like Mario Draghi in charge, and it stabilizes everything. In a way, Sunak, if things go well, would be kind of fulfilling that role, even though, of course, he is a politician. Well, I guess we will see what happens. Ed Luce. Thank you for helping us to understand what's going on in the UK once again. It's a delight. Thank you, Preet. For more analysis of legal and political issues making the headlines, become a member of the Cafe Insider. Members get access to exclusive content, including the weekly podcast I co-host with former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance. Head to cafe.com slash insider to sign up for a trial. That's cafe.com slash insider. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tatashore. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The editorial producers are Sam Ozer-Staten and Noah Azulai. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, 
and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.